Our text is in 1 Corinthians. I'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to apply it to our hearts and minds. By the power of your spirit, Lord, you can uh, penetrate into our hard hearts and into our hard heads, and we ask you to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is the fourth message in a five-part series. The first message was knowing what to do, and that was to be reasonably certain of a goal or direction, typically a big one in your life. The second was wanting what to do, and so at times we have to align our hearts with this direction. This is not something that we want to do. This is something that God has commanded us to do. Third, planning what to do, coordinating our thoughts and actions towards that goal, and so today we have choosing what to do, and that is to avoid distractions, to stay focused, to accomplish something. And so we talked about this being knowing, wanting, planning, and now it's again choosing down to the heart, head, heart, head, heart. The next message, the last message, I've been referring to it as do, do, do. I can't say that I've always been happy with that title. Um, it is kind of funny and a play on words, but I am going to modify it because I'm going to modify the content of it to some extent. I will still cover the same concepts, but I'm going to change it to what to do or delegate. In other words, delegation is a big aspect of getting things accomplished on this earth, and I think it would be good for us to incorporate that into this series. So now, today's message is choosing what to do. When we covered the very first topic, it was knowing what to do, and a really a sub-theme of knowing what to do was to decide what to do, 
And so we had to make ourselves understand this concept of questions we were asking ourselves. So it was about good decision-making. Knowing what to do came down to applying good decision-making principles. The same is true today with choosing what to do. It's good decision-making principles. It's at a different level, though. When we were deciding in that first thing whether something was worthy of doing, knowing what to do, having an assurance that this is something that we ought to expend our time and energy and our passion on, those were really by nature strategic decisions. They're high level, they're big, they're important, they're far-reaching. They will potentially drive the course of our lives. By contrast, what we're talking about today in choosing what to do, are, they can be very small, very, very small cumulative decisions that you make or you neglect to make such that you can attain those strategic goals or you fall far short of those strategic goals. There have been studies that have said that we adults make up to 35,000 decisions each day. Do you know how many seconds there are in a day? And that we sleep away one-third of those seconds, the average of us do. There are roughly 56,000 seconds in a day, and so that study is saying that we make a decision less than every two seconds. So right now, you're deciding whether to listen or fall asleep. Every few seconds, you're making that decision. And so, see, not all of those decisions are tactical and associated with these strategic goals that you have in your life. And that is where the challenge is. You might go days without deciding to pursue the attainment of your strategic objectives because you're just neglecting to decide to pursue them tactically. In other words, a big thing is only going to be achieved if these thousand smaller things are achieved, and we just tend to lose track of where we are in trying to achieve these big goals. Now, you'll be glad to know that children exercise their volition in making decisions far, far less than we adults, but still, a tenth and so they're deciding whether to obey you or not about every 20 seconds. So we humans are busy. Our heads are busy with decision-making. That's why we want to do it wisely, if possible. Now, too, we're at step four, and we think of things linearly. This is a process, right? And so we went from knowing to wanting to planning to choosing, knowing to wanting to planning back to choosing, back to the heart. And these stages are important. And the greatest failure, I would say, to achieve a strategic objective occurs in this stage. It all falls apart in the details. So while our heart and our head want to achieve these big strategic goals, we are failing to exercise our volition and our time wisely in the days and days and days that would then culminate in achieving that goal. And I believe that many of these big plans fall apart, really not with a bang, but with a whimper. 
we just stop putting any of those elements related to achieving that big goal on our to-do list for the days. And we grow weary of not accomplishing them. And so we just stop even trying. When I came back from Hawaii, I talked long ago with the knowing one about that pineapple stand business I wanted to create. And when I came back, and I'm in my job that I'm supposed to be working at, I was often daydreaming about the pineapple stand business. And I made plans, and I even got to this step. I even got to choosing. I was doing things, tactical objectives, riding off to the state of Hawaii to attempt to learn how to get business permits and such like that. And that's really where it kind of fizzled out. I just had this growing list of tactical things, accomplishments I needed to make. And the further I got from the vacation, the less passion I had for pursuing that, uh, that change. I think the more sense, frankly, I began to you know, be worked into my head. Um, but many big ideas die during this stage, and these are not always good. Some of these ideas are important to us. We want them to succeed, and yet we've failed to have them materialize. Things take time to accomplish. If it's a worthy goal, it will likely take you some time to accomplish, and it means then that you have to be resolved to accomplish them. So, our first step in choosing what to do is to test our resolve. I used the story from Luke 14, and I'll read a few verses here, starting at verse 25. This is Luke 14, 25. Now great multitudes went with him, went with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And Jesus referred to this as counting the cost. You have to count the cost to be a disciple of Christ. Now, all this week, I've had this burden in the back of my mind to um, study Pilgrim's Progress. Not necessarily to study it, but to re-familiarize myself with it. I'm not sure that I've ever read the whole book by John Bunyan. It's not Paul Bunyan. And so... Uh, I think long ago I got a copy and I read some of it, and then I probably found some Cliff Notes version of it, maybe a children's story actually, and I read that instead. Uh, the real book is big, and so I read this small book. But I still got the gist of it. I mean, it's an allegory. You can get the gist of Pilgrim's Progress pretty quickly without digging into the details. Now, you know the story perhaps? How many have read Pilgrim's Progress or listened to it on audio? Very good. That's a fairly good showing. Uh, John Bunyan begins it by saying that he was in a sleep, and in his sleep he dreamed this dream. And this came to him, essentially, the idea for this book. And we then meet this man, Christian, who has this heavy burden on his back that he can't be rid of, and he has this growing anxiety that the city in which he lives is going to be destroyed by God. And later we learn that the name of the city is the City of Destruction, he is uh, approached by a man named Evangelist, and Evangelist directs him to a distant city by pointing at this light and saying that there is a wicked gate through which he needs to go. Not wicked, wicked, 
you know, straw or wood or whatever that is, a wicket. So he then heads off. Now, we know the story at this point, and it is a little disconcerting to us as parents and as husbands because his wife and children start calling out to him. He's leaving, and they call out to him. He appears to be abandoning them. And instead of returning to them, he sticks his fingers in his ears and runs off muttering to himself or yelling to himself, life, life, eternal life. And he abandons his family. And so it doesn't seem to be a good Christian book at this point because it begins with this man abandoning his family. But you have to realize this is an allegory. And so this is spiritualizing it. What it is is that they're showing him running away in this sense because spiritually he's seeking the freedom that comes through the gospel. And they are trying to bring him back to his senses. Where are you going? They don't want him to go to God. They want to hang on to him. All of his friends, all of the people of the city, his own wife and children. So see, he stopped his ears and ran pell-mell out of the city. I want to share two examples of strategic resolutions. One was my own. One was someone else's in which I believe both were accomplished. Um, I know mine was. And the other one was accomplished, but it really cost the man everything. Uh, both of them were set in the late uh, 90s. I was, I believe, in a meeting with Phil at Phil's house, and he asked me, he said, Rodney, are you concerned about Y2K? And I'm like, what's Y2K? I, didn't, I hadn't read anything about it. I didn't know anything about it. This is probably in the summer of 97. And uh, I then read an article, read more articles, became concerned, read lots and lots of articles. I was trying to talk with lots of people and convince them of the seriousness of this issue. And what I realized, what suddenly dawned on me, was that I needed to write a book. I just, it was kind of fully fully formed in my head, I needed to write a book that marshaled all of what I'd been trying to find in a hundred different articles in one place. And so I did. And maybe not all of you know, but I wrote this book, Year 2000 Countdown to Calamity. So I wrote it over a few months. Uh, Hannah was born in July of 97, and I pretty much neglected her infancy uh, to write this book. And I can't say that it was a wise use of my time. Um, after Y2K came and went, and it was a non-event, and uh, people were very kind to me. You know, well, if I hadn't done this, it would have been far different. And I thought, well, no, no, I overreacted. But I still was really, really glad I'd written a book. That was a strategic goal that just fell into my head, fully formed. And I knew, I knew from that first day that I would write this book. I mean, I can't tell you how I knew that, but I knew that nothing would prevent me from writing this book. And now, I don't think this was pride or hubris, really. It was just this knowledge that God wanted me to do this. And so I did. And so in April 98, I went and picked up the first 750 copies of it, and then I spent months talking about it, you know, going. People would always invite me. I never charged money for it. I would just go talk, talk, talk. And really, though, by the middle of 99, I myself began to think, you know, this really does seem to be shaping up as a non-event. And so by that time, I really was no longer talking about it. 
Now, I did have an idea for a second book, and that was because everybody that I'd convinced this was an issue said, what do we do? And so my next one would have been preparation for calamity, but I never, I never wrote that one, although I did talk about it quite a bit. Now, that's my strategic goal that I did accomplish. I'm not sure I should have done it, but I devoted a lot of time to it. Tabitha can attest. Uh, the other one, though, was, is what's interesting is that about this same time, there was a man by the name of Paul Vischer who had founded Big Idea Productions, and he had just read this book, Built to Last. It had come out in paperback in 97. And he read it, and he came away convinced that he needed to embrace what is defined in this book as a BHAG, not a very good acronym but it's a big, hairy, audacious goal. So now he was running a successful company at the time. VeggieTales was steadily growing in popularity. And yet he came away from having read this book committed to adopting a big, hairy, audacious goal. And the movie that came out, the VeggieTales movie that came out in 03 by the name of Jonah was that idea, but it ruined his company. And I won't go into all the details. It's very interesting, but yet... He was at a point in the growing of the VeggieTales franchise in going from he was too big to be considered small, but he was still too small to be considered big. So he was in this middle area that Inc. Magazine referred to as no man's land. And so you're a company that's in the middle. You're kind of stuck. And he didn't want to be stuck anymore. And so he adopted this BHAG. And yet he made several errors, one of which was adopting a BHAG as opposed to uh, praying to God. He really didn't do the knowing that we talked about a few weeks ago. He didn't really, he blew right through that. And so he rushed into this, and then also he made some more mistakes that he admits to, but ended up costing him his company. So now why do I bring all this up? Because we must test our resolve in attempting to accomplish this big strategic goal that we've set to ourselves. And how do we test our resolve? It's in the choosing. Day to day, you are voting with your time and energy as to whether you truly value that that you have set as a strategic goal in your life. If you're no longer passionate about it, if you no longer really feel that this is what you want to do or what God wants you to do, you'll stop doing the work necessary day to day that will make it happen. That could be good. It could be bad. You could be neglecting what you should rightfully be doing, but also you could be essentially doing what I did, kind of like with letting the pineapple stand idea die. You're just admitting that this was a fantasy that you ought not to have gotten this far even. Knowing, wanting, planning, choosing. I presented them linearly, and yet they're really not linear. There is an aspect of them that's cyclical. You have to go back during this choosing phase especially, during these weeks, months, years that you're working on this. You're going back, you're assessing the knowing, you're assessing the wanting, you're assessing the planning. The plans especially will need to be adopted. Plans always need to be updated to reflect reality. And so you have to keep reassessing whether this is truly something that you should be devoting your time to. To not do that is foolishness. And so you must do it. And you're prayerfully hoping that God isn't changing things on you. But your circumstances might change. Rendering 
a need for a new decision, you're always going to be asking yourself, are you sure? Am I sure God's want me to do, God wants me to do this? Am I sure I'm going in the right direction? Choosing what we're at, where we're at today is informed then by reviewing each of those prior steps. The knowing must remain solid. The, any doubts must be addressed day to day. Wanting must be bolstered to align your heart with the goals that you've set. And plans must be further defined. We don't define them all up front. We have to modify them to account for changes. So now, our resolve has been tested, and now we again have to move on and strengthen our resolve. It, it grew weak for a period. We've had to strengthen all of this, the knowing, the wanting, the planning. In Acts chapter 5, we have the growth of the church. I'll start reading at verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. None of the rest. In other words, it's only the apostles that are gathering. None of Christ's other disciples are gathering yet. They're in fear. They're living in fear that all of this has been a dream, and it's all just going to fade away. But so as the rest of Acts 5 develops, Peter has this zeal for the Lord, and people are being converted, and the Sanhedrin is furious, and they want them dead. They imprison them. The angel lets them out. They go back into the, into the square ground, the temple grounds again. So then they're, again, they're arrested. They're brought before them, and that's where Gamaliel gives his advice about if this is of God, you will find yourself to be fighting against God. We get down to verse 40. And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Their zeal was not diminished by the opposition that they faced. Their resolve was strengthened, and all of these converts were made, transforming Jerusalem. The Pharisees, Sanhedrin, they hated this. Now, let's go back, though, to Luke 22 and listen to what Jesus told Peter. When you have returned to me, remember he had said, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed. And then he says, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And Peter is so zealous for the Lord at this point, nothing will stop him. They, that's why they wanted to kill him. So see, this strengthening of our resolve, I would say it doesn't come from within. It comes from God. It comes from others. We must be strengthened in our attempts to achieve this goal through something outside of ourselves. We are not going to sustain it ourselves. We have to be strengthened from others. In the Pilgrim's Progress, initially, when Christian runs away, he is accosted by two men that are sent from the city. Their names were obstinate and pliant. And so Christian gives his spiel as to why he's doing this 
obstinate, argues with him the whole time until finally he says, I'm rid of you, and goes back to the city of destruction. But Pliant is convinced that this celestial city that Christian is describing is worth visiting, is worth going to. They go into, however, what's called the Slough of Despond. Now, if you remember, Christian has this big package on his back of sin that's weighing him down. So when he goes into the Slough of Despond, it's difficult for him to make progress. He's struggling mightily. Pliant is in the Slough of Despond. He's not struggling as much. He has no weight on his back. But he is upset with Christian. Where is all this wonderful stuff you were telling me about? So he loses faith in Christian immediately, and he goes back to the city. But then what happens? Out of nowhere, someone named Help shows up to help Christian out of this slough of despondency and send him on his way, and we never see him again. See, that's the Christian life. That is what happens with us. God knits us together and has assistance come from who knows where. And yet, he's doing that in order to keep us going further, further, onward and upward. Now, part of strengthening our resolve, part of choosing the topic that we have today is about avoiding bad choices. The text I read was in 1 Corinthians 10, and again, it's kind of like I've been using text all along. It just serves for a piece, an illustration. In verses 6 through 10, we have these sins listed. These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. We do not become idolaters, that we do not commit sexual immorality, that we do not tempt Christ, and in verse 10, that we do not complain. So there are these five things represented that we ought not do. Now think about these Jews in the wilderness. They have been stripped of all volition, in a sense. God, in a pillar of uh, cloud during the day or a pillar of fire at night, dictates when they leave or if they leave. They might be there a day. They might be there a year. It's not their choice. They're like a child being trained in terms of wanting what it is that God has told them to want and not wanting what God has told them they are not to want. Yet they all fail. God kills off every adult from that generation because they have a slave mentality. Their simple existence cut through all of their, down to the heart, down to the core. Who am I? What am I doing here? Why do I exist? What am I to do today? You see, they didn't have choices like we have. You, you have a thousand choices as to how to waste your time every day. They had none. None. And they were frustrated by this, just as you would be. We are frustrated when all these choices are taken away from us. When we can't exercise this energy that we want. And so see, every day, they would face the same old, the same old, the same old, the same old. But when I hear manna described, it sounds lovely. But day after day after day after day, and they grew weary of it. We grow weary of God's grace. I brought this book up here because it's one of my favorite books on earth. 
This is by John Owen. And this one little phrase is something that is in my mind a lot. I've probably read this the first time 30 years ago. Every act of sin is a fruit of being weary of God. Every act of sin is a fruit of being weary of God. So in other words, we think sins, we think of them differently. And yet, it's like sins are growing on a tree. And that tree is a tree that is described in 1 Corinthians 10. It's a tree of lust. It's a tree of indulging in complaining, of tempting Christ, of committing various immoralities. So when we sin, we are telling God, I don't love you right now more than I love this sin. So now, to avoid bad choices then, to choose daily to pursue and progress the goals that God has given us, the ones that we know are right for us, we have to then overcome these things. Uh, a couple years ago, or a year ago, I forget, I, but I shared with you that I had finally, after decades, added a signature to my emails. And at work, I added this quote from John Maxwell, you cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. You cannot under, overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. I love that phrase because John Maxwell's a Christian, a businessman, and so there are two meanings here. And to me, the greater meaning, obviously, is that we live and move and have our being in God, and yet the vast majority of people we work with couldn't care less. That means everything they're doing is unimportant. And the only reason anything I'm doing is important is because I am in Christ. And so when I want to stay focused on accomplishing something, I have to ignore 99% of the other things that would want to vie for my time. Focus on what it is you want to get done that day. There are alternatives to being productive that we let's label them all as the unproductive paths, the unproductive ways in which we can spend time. And I'll list three. There's laziness. There is the next step beyond laziness, and that's wastefulness. And then there's the next step beyond that, and that's destructiveness. And so destructiveness characterizes the behavior of criminals, of vandals. And yet socialism tends towards this. Because socialisms make all of us into criminals, stealing from one another, and we all lose respect for property. And so it's then my desire to deprive you of property that you have because you have it and I don't. So as opposed to that being the situation, I would rather it be destroyed. So in socialist cultures, they have a fairly low view of property because nobody owns it. It's the state's. And so then nobody cares for it. It's all just dissipated. Whereas for you to have value for something, you have to have some interest in it. You want to see it uh, retained, protected. So that's destructiveness. That's vandalism. That's criminal behavior. The next one is wastefulness. And this is what the prodigal son indulged in. He had grown up in his father's home. His father was a good and godly man, raised them properly, and yet this boy rebelled against this. He's tired of this. I don't want to always be doing this work. So he talks his father into giving him his inheritance. He leaves. He wastes it all in a far country. 
And yet then, of course, we know he comes to his senses and returns. But yet, look at that wastefulness. That older brother has a point. That older brother is upset with his younger brother's wastefulness. The last one, laziness, is perhaps a step on the way to wastefulness or even destructiveness. And the Bible is filled with wisdom pointing out the fruit of laziness. And yet, we must know and see that laziness starts in the head. It doesn't start with your body. It starts in your head. We, there are many uh, jingles, I think, that kind of try to indulge us in our laziness. This one is from long ago. I forget how long ago, but do you recognize the phrase or the jingle, you deserve a break today? You deserve a break today. So that's McDonald's telling you not to cook, that you need to go buy their food. We work hard so you don't have to. Now, this one we might all benefit from. This is scrubbing bubbles. This is where you just sprinkle something on there, and then it takes care of it. Now, all of us who have attempted to believe these lies are disappointed, though, because this doesn't usually happen. You don't just sprinkle it on like a magic wand and it goes away. There's some elbow grease required. But still, these are really rooted in a sense of irresponsibility. It's not just to make it easier. It's to absolve you of it entirely. All we need is your money, and we can make that problem go away. Now, I have told you before that I am a lazy person, and I am. I don't really mean to make it a less than serious issue, and I don't think I do, typically, but I am lazy. I must fight against this uh, temptation. And the Bible has so much to say about laziness. Let me run through some of these. Proverbs 20, verse 13, do not love sleep lest you come to poverty. And here we see the direct correlation between our inactivity and our poverty. I'll read Proverbs 24, starting at verse 30. I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding, and there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. So see, what I want to point out here is our topic today is about choosing, and it's, it's, the, it's the so many little decisions that need to accumulate to achieving your big objective. This man doesn't want to live like this. This lazy man doesn't want to live with nettles growing on his fences and, and no, no uh, grapes on his vines. But yet, day by day by day, he's allowed it to become this way. And suddenly, he finds that there is, he's not a productive person. He's allowed it to come to this. My favorite proverb, I think, concerning labor is 1423. In all labor there is profit. That's typically where I stop. But idle chatter leads only to poverty. See, I ought to memorize that whole verse. In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. In other words, you're talking the talk, but are you walking the walk? Proverbs 13, 4. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing. And so, see, we're not talking about just the man's um, 
hunger. We're talking about his soul. We're all human. We all want fulfillment, and we all know that fulfillment doesn't come only through getting a meal today. It comes through deeper things than that. And yet the soul of the lazy man does have those desires, yet he has nothing to show for them because he doesn't act upon them. He doesn't exercise his uh, ingenuity, his mind, his efforts in order to approach those in any, in any, uh, to any degree. Proverbs 21.25, the desire of the lazy man kills him. The desire of the lazy man kills him for his hands refuse to labor. I don't think this is talking about starvation when it says the desire of the lazy man kills him for his hands refuse to labor. It's, it's talking about killing his soul, killing his spirit. The lazy man has no self-respect. He'll be angry at you if you attempt to point that out. But he's headed towards death, and he doesn't want to stop. Now, by contrast, these are on diligence. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty. So see, you can be diligent and fail, but the fact is, is that if you're diligent, you will not allow failure to keep you down. You will keep going, keep going, keep going until you succeed. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty. Proverbs 27, 23, be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds, for riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. One of the reasons that America is the greatest country in the world, bar none, is when you study who's wealthy in our country and you look back to see if their grandparents were wealthy, it's amazing how often you have people that have become wealthy when their grandparents were poor or have become poor when their grandparents were wealthy. It's remarkable. We live in a country with tremendous potential. And that's why when immigrants come here that aren't coming from a culture of dependency, when they come here with strong work ethic, they succeed. The Cubans revitalized Florida when they fled Castro's Cuba. I mean, they came there with energy. The Vietnamese that fled to Southern California, to Westminster area in the 70s, they came with their wealth. They came with their productivity. They work hard. So people that have a good work ethic transform the world. And we should be thankful for these people that have come here and done this. But sadly, we no longer ourselves as a nation value such hard work. We try to bring them in and say, oh, no, no, don't worry, don't do anything. Here, we'll give you what you need. Totally destroying the reason why they're seeking liberty and, and freedom in the first place. Hebrews 12.1. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. God describes our life as races. And so you don't sit down like the tortoise or the hare. It's the hare that sits down, right? The tortoise keeps going. And so we don't sit down in a race when we're participating in it. We keep going. Revelation 14, 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. And so the works that we have worked for follow us. We are laying up treasure in heaven. 
Our labor is going to be rewarded by God. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Now, many of us work for earthly employers. And so the scripture tells us, don't think that your work is solely for this person or this person's company. It is unto the Lord. I admit, it's hard for us to do that because we, our volition is involved. We don't need to work for this person or this company. We can choose to do something else. So there is an act of our wills involved here. But now, I'm not working for anybody right now. And so what I've realized is that I have nobody between me and God now. And so God's my direct boss. I, I guess I've been promoted in a sense. You know, I'm reporting to the big guy now. That scares me. You know, I, it, what is that that people say that uh, when people work for themselves that they, they don't like their boss? You know, I mean, it's just that it's funny, but they're, tr they're saying the truth. They don't like how their boss doesn't give them enough work to do. They don't like how their boss doesn't keep them because they're their boss. And they can't complain about this other person. They have to complain about themselves. So all of us ultimately work for God. He is our boss. And we ought to always remember that, that everything that we do for him has value. Everything that he has us doing through our earthly employer has value. It's hard for us to imagine this. Why? How can God possibly benefit by like, some menial task that I'm doing? We don't have to understand it. The Bible tells us this. We really ought to just accept it. We don't know how. There's much that we don't know. We just have to accept it. So just that you can't understand it doesn't mean that you ought not do it. You ought to do it. When you don't understand something, you ought to all the more reason do it. Because there should be a fear, as we heard earlier, fear of God in this. We want to serve the Lord. Ephesians 5, 15 to 17. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Colossians 1.29, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. This is the Apostle Paul saying that the Spirit of the Lord works in him mightily. He knows this. He's so thankful to God for this. We all want to be able to say this phrase, that the Spirit of God is at work in me mightily. We must resist temptation. We talked about 1 Corinthians 10 with the Jews in the wilderness, giving in to temptation, many of them dying. The end of that chapter has two verses that I haven't covered yet. Verses 12 and 13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, I have absolute trust in the inerrancy of Scripture, and yet I must admit that over the years, I have found it difficult to be comforted by this verse, because I haven't found it to be true quite often in my experience. 
Let me read it again. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. That I agree. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That's a promise from God that we need not indulge in any sin that we are currently being tempted with. That should give me confidence that I can overcome this temptation. And yet often I would fall, often I would fall, often I would fall. And I would look at this, and it's almost mocking me. And so what I must realize, though, is given the inerrancy of Scripture and given the fact that this doesn't appear to be working for me, what's wrong? What am I doing wrong in that I can't really appreciate the value of this? I had this memorized. I loved this verse. But yet in a practical sense, I just felt that I was failing it or it was failing me, and I didn't know which. And let me share something with you, and I think it comes down to what this whole topic is about choosing. For a long time, think of three things. There is our will, there is our affection or our love, and there is then what comes out of that, our intellect, our, our ability to marshal our thoughts and our mind and do these things. So we have these three things. We have our will, we have our affections, we have the outworkings of those. I believe, without really knowing that I was doing this subconsciously, I always had will at the center. At the center of this successful implementation of this verse was my will. In other words, if I was failing to do this, it was because of something broken. I had to fix something. I had to have a new habit, or I had to break an old habit. There was some action that was required of me. And so see, if you could see where I'm going, that's where my flaw in understanding this verse was. I would attribute the failures to me, to my hedges or lack of hedges, when in reality, it goes back to the truth of what I quoted here. Every act of sin is a fruit of being weary of God. So in that instant when I am embracing sin, I am not loving God. So affection, which should be at the core of my being, a love for God, a thankfulness to God, was no longer there. I had hollowed it out to stick sin back in there because I wanted to indulge in sin if only for a season, if only for a time. And so, see, that's what we do. When we are not finding this escape, it's because we don't love God. We don't want His escape at that moment. We are irritated with God for offering us escape from this sin that we now love more than God. And so, when you are choosing each day what to do, these 35,000 times, your heart has to be right with the Lord in order for those to come anywhere close to being good decisions. So to the degree that you are living in obstinate rebellion against God is the degree to which your decisions will not be good. You might get lucky sometimes. That's just God's providence. That's just God's kindness to you. Yet we must begin each day. The very first decision, that first 1.8 seconds, that first decision must be get your heart right with the Lord. Accept the reality that you must obey God to receive His blessings. It's not works righteousness. 
but it is a thankful response to a God who has treated us so kindly and so lovingly. So, I encourage you to make choices each day that are wise, and yet the only way that you're going to do that is by putting affection, love of God first. All of your hedges that you build around that are helpful, but they can't take the place of love. Without love, you will blow through those hedges. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it, for the strength of it. And Lord, we thank you uh, mostly for the power of your Holy Spirit to um, draw us towards you in complete obedience. We thank you for your word. We know that you will uh, not tempt us beyond what we are able, that you will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. And yet we must love you in order to rely upon that which you will uh, throw to us to save us from it. We also pray, Lord, that we would rebuke, that we would flee the devil, that we would rebuke him such that he would flee from us. We know that your word is true and that your word is powerful. And we pray, Lord, that we would make use of it, that we would not think less of it, that we would always question why it is that we have doubts about this or that scripture. Test our hearts to see whether we are true to you. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to guide us in the choices that we make that we would always choose to be faithful to you first and foremost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.